communication, a reminder to every one of us that you hear us, that you know us, that you are acquainted with our way, and that you vindicate your people, you rescue the righteous out of every trouble. And Lord, we can look to you as a refuge, even as Psalm 2 indicates, that we can trust upon you and that we can rely on you to be our defense. Father, I just pray that you would help us to see in this psalm that you are a God of comfort, a God of all comfort, as the Apostle Paul says, and that we can bring to you our burdens, our cares, our concerns, our worries, that we can cast all of our anxieties upon you because you care for us. And so, Lord, would you be for us that rock eternal? Would you be for us, Lord, that foundation that anchor for our souls. Help us now, Lord, as we look at Your Word to to apprehend what the truth of Scripture is saying, and by the grace of God and by the activity of Your Spirit, may we apply Your Word richly to our lives. Pray, Father, that You would help us now, that You would alleviate 10,000 troubles here today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, um, taken in consecutive order, if you go down the Psalter, going from Psalm 1 to Psalm 2 to Psalm 3, it doesn't take a genius to count, but if you look at these Psalms as expositions of the life of the King, you can almost say that Psalm 1 is the righteousness of the King, the blessed man. Psalm 2 is the sovereignty of the King, the Son of God. And Psalm 3 teaches us something about the suffering or the anguish of the king. All three of these are characteristics of the life of Christ. His moral perfections, his righteousness, his beatitude, his blessedness, his sonship, his lordship as king, as son, as sovereign. And now we consider his condescension, if you would, If we look at this psalm as a reflection of the life of David that is ultimately typological of the life of Christ, then we find that Jesus was indeed a man of sorrows, as the Scriptures say. But this psalm is immensely practical for you and I, too. Every time a psalmist engages in a psalm like this, a psalm of vindication, a psalm of lamentation where he laments in sorrow and despairs, before he exclaims the hope that he has and the victory that God will provide for him. You and I can take great comfort in the words of the psalmist here because we're looking at not just anguish, but hope-filled anguish. If you would, I guess to title our sermon, it would be the hope-filled anguish of the, of the king. And what we find is that the psalmist is going to encounter a very similar pattern in each section. Verses 1 to 3, verses 4 to 6, verses 7 to 8, and in every single instance, what you have is the rise of a crisis in the life of the king which he laments, and then it's always followed up by a response of faith. That's what you have here. In this opening section, verses 1 to 3, which is what we're going to look at today, you find that The king faces impossible opposition. He also undergoes incredible detrimental discouragement. And ultimately, it leads to the source of his confidence. So that's the first thing. 
the face of overwhelming opposition. Because look at the words of the psalmist. Just read the opening verse with me again. It says, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. And so right there, you have a king that is overwhelmed. Now, if you have a Bible like mine, maybe you have a superscription or a title to your psalm. Mine says that this is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And so that is really the historical uh, backdrop. That is, that is the passage that this psalm is actually situated in. It is the time when Absalom, David's estranged, disgraced son, has come back to the city, back to Jerusalem, back to Zion. And he has come to overthrow his father. As a matter of fact, the way that the saga develops, and really, it really is, if you don't spend time in the life of David, boy, you're missing out on a really, really rich drama of, 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 of triumph and tragedy all mingled into one man. And um, Absalom is an interesting person because he is extremely brilliant. Uh, he is extremely magnetic. He is extremely uh, personable and apparently even likable because it says in Second Samuel chapter five, the whole uh, section there is really Second Samuel five, all the uh, excuse me, Second Samuel fifteen, all the way to Second Samuel eighteen. That's the kind of the that's the section in Samuel where you're concerned with in terms of this psalm. But it says in Second Samuel fifteen six that Absalom actually stole away the hearts of the men of men of Israel. In other words, he, he related to the people by going to the gates where judicial uh, uh, decisions were made, and he went there with a very simple uh, strategy, that is to, to paint himself as more sympathetic, more just, more empathetic toward the needs of the people, and little by little, through his little influence that he wielded, he ended up stealing the hearts of the men of Israel. So he mounted a whole... Conspiracy. As a matter of fact, in chapter 15, verse 12, David found himself in what he calls, or what the text calls, the, a strong conspiracy, which is to say it was a complex situation. It was a, it was a very strong delusion. It was, uh, uh, the, the lies and the intrigue were deep. It wasn't as simple as just the king coming out and giving a little explanation. He was, he was building an allegiance around himself. That is Absalom. Now, during this time, David is forced to flee Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, you kind of see this because if you go back to Psalm 2, he talks about Zion. But there he says that, it says, God is speaking, says, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then as we look at this psalm, Psalm 3, he seems to refer to Zion as a distant place. He talks about God helping him from Zion, from his holy mountain. So probably at this time, David's already fleeing and, and, and uh, he's being forced out of his kingdom. This is really, really interesting and really, really rich. Um, it says that he answered him from his holy mountain. Because what we're looking at in Psalm 3 is a cry of despair. It's a, it's a lamentation. This is a prayer where David is asking God to help him in his tribulation in such a tumultuous time. During this coup that... that, that Absalom had mounted, David was overwhelmed by the opposition at the hands of his own people. And as a matter of fact, the result of David's situation in Psalm 3 really serves as a song that was sung for all the future generations of Israel in their time of trouble, both corporately and personally. They would sing this song. 
This is a song that you want to sing in your tribulations, in your trials, when you are overwhelmed. Read this this psalm and identify with it. Identify with the emotions of it. That's what these psalms are made for, by the way. That's That's why we can't have stoic worship. That's why the worship of God's people cannot just be sort of an austere expression of truth. Yes, we sing truth, but where's your heart? Remember what the Lord says, these people worship me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. Our songs must be mingled with genuine affections to the Lord. And that's what David had. He had genuine affections for God. He genuinely sought after the Lord with his whole heart, especially in the midst of a crisis like this. This crisis was really remarkable because what you see is um, that the king here, which obviously is overtones of the Messiah, you see that, that, that David here typifies Christ in so many different ways. Um, David typologically uh, represents Christ just in his sufferings. As a matter of fact, even in the life of David here, so much, the betrayal that he undergoes, the betrayal at the hands of his own people, even those closest to him. As a matter of fact, David even went up the same path as Jesus did in the Mount of Olives. Um, You'll see that in a moment. But in the hope-filled suffering of the king, we learn to suffer and to trust ourselves. What does Peter tell us? That in the sufferings of Christ, there is an example for us to follow. Let me read to you 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. It says, For you have been called for this purpose. That's talking about suffering as a Christian. This is not suffering for your own foolishness. This is suffering for righteousness as a righteous person. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. Now, the nature of the psalmist's suffering here represents a picture of overwhelming adversity. That's precisely what Jesus faced in his own life. He came to his own, John 1.12 says, and his own did not believe in him or did not receive him. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53. Everyone was gathered against him. You remember Acts chapter 4, verse 27, where it says that Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, the Jews, everyone conspired against Christ, even as they conspired against David in this episode in Samuel. This is overwhelming opposition. And this is precisely what we can expect in our own lives. We can expect to be overwhelmed with and, and, and when we're overwhelmed, anger, fear, anxiety, despair, doubt, that is not the answer. It's not proper for us to respond to our trials with hopelessness when, in fact, if you have the hope of David, then you have hope in your trials. The, the right response is what we see coming from David. Total dependence on God. Total resignation upon the sovereignty of God. So I want you to put a finger there, 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel will toggle back and forth. But you see some of this resignation right here as David sort of resigns and yields himself and entrusts himself to the divine providence. Ask yourself, do you trust in the divine providence of God or do you find yourself working hard to remedy your own situation all the time? Frustrated, angry, hopeless, despairing. 
David understood God is sovereign. I don't have to take matters into my own hands. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 24, this is an interesting insight that happens here during this time. It says that the priest Zadok also came, and all the Levites with him carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. See, what happens is that as Absalom takes over the city, the priest said, you know what we will do? We'll take the Ark of God and we'll take it to David. That way, people will see that God is with David. By virtue of the Ark, which represents his presence, the presence of God will be with the king. And so they, in a sense, they were trying to leverage the ark as a means for David to regain his power and prominence. It says they carried the ark of the covenant of God, and they sat down the ark of God. They, excuse me, they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar came up until all the uh, came up until all the people had finished passing from the city. The king said to Zadok, "This is David speaking. Return the ark of God to the city." If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. Notice that for David, Zion was God's habitation. He says, but if he would say thus, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. Wow. David was perfectly content allowing God to decide the outcome of the situation. He just trusted him. This is remarkable. And this is a remarkable uh, scene where these priests are literally trying to fix David's problem. And David just says no. David was unwilling to, to use human tactics to win the battle, as it were, to regain his glory. David was more content with allowing God to do it. That's remarkable. That's the way that we should do. And that is what you see in the life of Christ. Christ said, not my will, but your will be done. Uh, Remember what he told his disciples at his arrest. He told them, don't you think, don't you know, don't you understand? At any moment, I can summon a legion of angels and to wipe out everybody. And if you see what one angel did in Assyria, wiping out 150,000 people, just one angel coming into a city and just decimating all of God's enemies. Imagine what a legion of angels, thousands of angels could do. Wow. So what Jesus is saying is, look, I have total power, total omnipotence, and I I could dispose that power if I want to, but he did not. Instead, he showed the proper example of being a suffering king in his humiliation. As one commentator said, Jesus chose submission rather than resistance. The face of overwhelming opposition must be met with a willingness to remain resigned under the sovereignty of God's will. This helps us so much if you would just but understand that your trials are an opportunity for you to submit to the sovereign will of God instead of bucking and screaming and crying and complaining and grumbling. We so quickly do that, don't we? We, We're so quickly moved from our joy. We're so quickly moved from our foundation. One little trial, and it upsets everything. Why are we like that when we claim to believe in a sovereign God who's perfectly in control of our trials? Anger is a killer here. Um, If you're anything like me, uh, impatient, uh, um, just quick-tempered at times because things didn't go exactly the way that I wanted to. Oh, that flesh, it just acts up, right? When it really should be under submission 
to the will of God, even in the midst of tribulation? What is God trying to teach us in the midst of those times? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I can't think of any, I've used this scripture so many times, but I can't think of a better passage that captures what God is doing in the midst of overwhelming opposition. Think of David completely overwhelmed by what has transpired in Jerusalem. His own son has overthrown him and cast him out. He's out there walking around in shame. And we'll see that. The Apostle Paul helps us to understand the eternal, the the heavenly perspective, the eternal perspective in all of our trials. Now, this is obviously an extreme example, but is it any different with our smaller trials? No, it's not. Beginning in verse 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, it says, We don't want you to be unaware, brethren, the affliction that came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. And in the Greek, it's actually really graphic language that Paul is using there of a, like, a, like a compounding uh, uh, um, sort of imagery. Not burdened excessively beyond our strength. He's trying to show you how desperate the situation was. He says, so we even despaired even of life. Indeed, it wasn't just a, it wasn't just a, um, a sigh of exasperation. Oh, what am I going to do? Oh, no. Matter of fact, he says, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. It, it, basically, what Paul is saying is that deep in our own hearts, in our gut, we felt like we knew that we were going to die. It was so bad. And what's the purpose? Here's the purpose clause. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. You see the eternal perspective there. So that we would not trust in ourselves, and by not trusting in ourselves, God better hurry up and remedy my condition, right? God better hurry up and fix my situation, that's not what Paul says. Paul says that his hope was ultimately eschatological. It was like David's, right? David is basically saying, look, let God do with me whatever he wants. I trust him, right? What, what Paul is saying is, look, we're going to abandon self, self-reliance. <clears throat> we're going to turn away from self and put our faith in God. Why? Because he raises the dead, Not because he fixes every single little temporal trial. Not because that job that you lost, you're going to get it back. Not just because that relationship that ended is going to get started up again. Not because your finances are down, they're going to come right back up again. It may not be. Things may get worse if you trust in Christ, if you rely on God. And it's like Spurgeon said, so what if I die like a dog? At least the crown is on his head. That's where the allegiance is at. God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, He on whom we have set our hope. Not political hope. Not financial hope. Not hope in yourself. Not hope in your boss. Not hope in your paycheck. Not hope in your house. Oh, you know, the Lord taught Trish and I this lesson recently. Um, all of a sudden I was having a very tranquil devotion on the couch in the living room, enjoying myself, very peaceful, peaceful situation there, meditating as I always do on Holy Scripture. <laughs> and out comes this, this, this cry of 
crisis. Emilio! And then I thought something was wrong with the baby, of course. I jump up and I hear this horrible hissing sound. Like this is a gas line in the master bedroom or something? It was our toilet. Um, the hose that goes into the toilet from the wall snapped. And water came exploding everywhere. And in a very short uh, period of time, half of my bathroom, literally in 10 seconds, half my bathroom was full of water. And so, you know, I had to dive right in. And I had to turn the water off and I had to fix the toilet and all of that. And then Trish turns to me and says, what if we would not have been home? The whole house would have flooded. Yeah, that's right. You can't trust in anything here. I don't care what year your house was built in. I used to work construction. I don't know how cheap these houses are made. You can't trust in drywall. You can't trust in politics. You can't trust in money. You can't trust in global peace. Look what's going on right now. You can't trust in the weather. Um, Robert De Niro tries to build a paradise for himself out in the middle of nowhere, some paradise island. Look what God did to him. The little island of, I think it's Bermuda or something. The, the entire island is now uninhabitable. Every single resident of that island was forced to flee. You can't trust in anything here. You can't trust in yourself. You can't trust in your circumstances. You cannot put your faith in 911. The people in the recent hurricanes, they learned that. They gave notices, as a matter of fact, on the news saying 911 is no longer receiving calls. To us, it's like, what? And to 90% of the world that lives in a condition where there's no such thing as 911, (laughs) they wouldn't miss it anyway. Not just overwhelming opposition, he also faced overwhelming discouragement. This is why I... I, um, I decided to do this psalm. I think we all know Psalm 2. As for me, I've installed my king on Zion, the holy mountain. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. You are my son. We love that psalm. But Psalm 3 is sometimes a forgotten psalm. That this psalm of deep anguish is essential for us. To know how to cope with tribulation. Not only did he have overwhelming opposition, but But David also heard the sound of overwhelming discouragement. The sound, many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Now, if your Bible, like mine, has the Hebrew word selah, this is a very debated textual issue. Um, The debate surrounds the question, is the say laws of the Psalter, are they original or were they added later? A lot of evidence suggests that they were, a lot of them were added later, okay, but um, we don't, I don't know, I'm not sure, but I do know this, that it is pretty much a consensus that the word say law represents some sort of musical interlude in a psalm that was to be sung. So you would be singing the psalm, and and when you got to this point, there is no deliverance for him in God, say law. And then the music would carry the tone for a while, and you were meant to, in that interlude, ponder and stop and pause and contemplate what is being said here. And what is being said here is deeply discouraging for David. 
people are basically saying he is cursed of God. What does that remind you of? Absolutely. Because, like Christ, who was also similarly mocked as one who had been forsaken of God, David undergoes the same shame. Now look at 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30. You see this remarkable analogy to Christ right here. He says, Now David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. And if you come with us to Israel, we will take that same ascent. And it says, And he wept as he went. And his head was covered. For men to cover the head was a symbol of shame. And he walked barefoot. Another symbol of great mourning. Then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. Think of the shame of that. The glory of the kingdom ripped away from you, stripped away from you. There are lies in the kingdom that you cannot fix. There's nothing you can do. You're crippled. All of your, it's, it's amazing what happens here, but for, for, for uh, David, he is overcome by so much conspiracy and betrayal. Many of his closest friends are betraying him. Ahithophel, who is known as one of David's you know, most sound advisors, turns against him. That's exactly what was spoken about Christ. Matthew 27, verse 42. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. Wow. Think about the blasphemous taunt of saying of God's son that God cannot help him. This is what they were doing to David as David was also the son of God. That is the object of God's love, the object of God's affection, God's son, lowercase s. He was forgotten by God, abandoned, cursed of God even. He was orphaned by the Father. Adversity and our adversaries, and just live by virtue of living in this world, as we face the three-pronged enemy, the, the sin, Satan, and society, can be easy, can, we can be easily discouraged and vexed, even as Lot was. But this is what life is like in the present age. We are taunted, we are tempted, we are tried, and we are tempted to think that at times we are estranged of God. I've had so many Christians come and tell me that they feel abandoned by God in a certain trial, in a time of great testing, cancer, death in the family, problems in the marriage, problems in your own sanctification. All of these things can contribute. And as a matter of fact, our own sin just complicates and compounds everything. doesn't help. But now, I, I don't want to leave us there. Because Psalm 2 reminded us of something glorious. Look at the end of Psalm 2. How blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. That same glorious Christological hope is carried over to Psalm 3 when David says that even though he was, he was taunted in this way, many were rising up against him. Many were saying there's no hope for him in God, no deliverance for him in God. And then after the interlude comes a resounding adversative, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the one who lifts my head. This is great because what, what David is helping us to do here, brothers and sisters, is he's helping us to pray. He's reminding us this is how you pray when you're overwhelmed, discouraged, when you are betrayed, when you're hurt, 
when you're in pain, when you are spiritually distraught, this is what you do. You go to God. And you seek God and you say this of God. If you would, we pray God's word back to Him. And we remind Him of who He is. You're a shield about me. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. Everything that David apparently lost in his trial, the reality of Psalm 3, the reality that David comes to is that is this, that in reality he has lost none of that because those things that he lost are not the substance of those things. Uh, his, his protection it doesn't come by virtue of dwelling in a kingdom surrounded by walls. The shield is God. Uh, his glory, His dignity, and, and, and his, his majesty as a king does not come by virtue of the fact that He sits on a throne in a kingdom. His glory ultimately comes from God. He's His glory. And so I, I discern three things here that David is patiently, reverently, brokenly, contritely praying for. Number one, total protection from God. God had to do what no one else could do. He was overwhelmed. He was outnumbered. He, he was overcome. And, and at the same time, he was also committed to not destroying his son. Oh, the compassion of David. David, he should have just killed Absalom as soon as possible. But there's evidence, if you go to, uh, go to a second, back to 2 Samuel, go back to 2 Samuel, you, you see evidence of this everywhere where finally at last when they, when they come upon uh, Absalom to get revenge, in chapter 18, the king tells Joab and Abishai and, and Itai, he says to them, deal gently for the sake of, uh, deal gently for this, uh, uh, for my sake with the young man. <laughs> what? I mean, this guy that's caused all this trouble in the kingdom and disgraced you and took your honor and your valor, you want us to deal gently with him? See, David was 100% committed that God was his defense. An amazing uh, exhibition of faith. David realizes that the conspiracy is strong. He can't outdo it on his own. The intrigue, the lies that Absalom has wielded is a virtual impossibility to untangle on his own. He can't go around house to house and win back the favor of every Jewish family in the kingdom. This is major, major problems here. This is a meltdown. David's in a tangled mess. He prays for God's protection. And one of the ways the original context helps us to see this is that David prays to God to protect him by confusing his enemies, which is really remarkable because if you look at Samuel 15, you go back to verse, uh, uh, um, excuse me, 2 Samuel 15, you go back to verse 31, remember, remember what's going on here, who these characters are, who these people are in the account. Ahithophel. Look at what it said about Ahithophel, verse 31. Now someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. You know why he said that? 
He said that because earlier on, or later on, he's going to explain in chapter 16, verse 23, that the counsel of Ahithophel was so regarded, was so influential, so powerful, so, it had such a grip on the people. It says that his wisdom was like hearing the word of God itself. People, and it says that it was regarded to be such both by David and Absalom. In other words, Ahithophel's counsel was wisdom personified. And so to hear that this most influential counselor in the kingdom is now siding with your adversaries against you, just amazing. Just amazing. We could, we could think about who could turn the heart of Ahithophel into foolishness. Who could turn his counsel into foolishness but God? That's why David prays not for the increase of his own power or that God would give him a secret plan to overthrow Absalom, but that the conspiracy would crumble on its own. As far as Ahithophel is concerned, his counsel was regarded, uh, excuse me, his counsel was disregarded, leading to his inevitable suicide and disgrace. Wow, remarkable. One of his closest friends and companions of David ultimately betrayed him, went out, and hung himself. What does that remind you of? God did the very thing that David asked and threw and thwarted the plans of his enemies and protected him thus. The Lord was David's shield. He surrounded him, protected him against all the schemes of the enemy. And this is no wonder why Spurgeon said this. Spurgeon says, A shield means a buckler around you, a protection which shall surround the man entirely, a shield above, beneath, around, without, and within. Spurgeon says, Oh, what a shield is God for his people. He wards off the fiery darts of Satan from beneath and the storms of trials from above, while at the same instant he speaks peace to the tempest within our heart. That's God being a shield for his people. Not just protection, but also contentment. You see, David was a man of war. Look at uh, second. Look at Samuel, seventeen. You go to verse seventeen. You look at verse eight. Look at the way that they're conspiring against him. They acknowledge it's remarkable. They acknowledge who David really is. It says in verse eight of chapter seventeen. Moreover, Hushai was a friend of David. You know that your father and his men that they are mighty men. That they are fierce like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father's an expert in warfare and will not spend the night with the people. Behold, he now has hidden himself in one of the caves or in another place. And it will be when, when he falls on them at the first attack that whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who followed Absalom. And, when, and, and even the one who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion will completely lose heart for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and those that are with him are valiant men. Valiant men. David could have exercised this power. He could have went on the offensive. But instead, what do we see? We see that with David, there's almost this Christ-like meekness, a willingness to yield and to resign himself to the sovereignty of God. So when he says, you are my glory, he is saying, 
that God himself is his treasure. That God himself is what brings value to David's life. You see, this is insightful for us in our own trials. That when we're going through what we're going through and we think we're losing what we're losing or we think we're being deprived of what we're being deprived of, we need to stop and remember, no, our value, our dignity, our worth comes from God. He is our value. And therefore, guess what? Guess what this did for David? It let him, it allowed him to manifest an indomitable confidence in God so that he could humble himself and entrust himself to the Lord. And somebody that humbles themselves, guess what? You don't need to vindicate yourself all the time. You don't, know, you don't need to come to your defense all the time. You don't need to go and correct everybody that said something about you all the time. Let God take care of your adversaries. Uh, matter of fact, let me, let me put it in the, way, in the, in, in, in the sense that, that Scripture puts it in. He was not so concerned about his own glory, David, that he needed to defend himself against every dog that barked his way. Look at chapter 16 of Samuel. 2 Samuel 16, verse 5. Remember this episode? Remarkable. When King David came to Buharim, behold, there came out there from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, or Shimei, a son of Gerah. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. Isn't it amazing that he says King David there, just to emphasize who he's throwing stones at. And all the people and all the mighty men that were at his right hand and all at his left, the Shimei said when, said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you men of bloodshed, you worthless fellow. The Lord, ret- the Lord has returned upon you the bloodshed of the house of Saul. Wow. See this? You see how people will be tempted to interpret your trials? This is happening to you because of something you did in the past. And almost like they're rubbing it in. This is their chance. They can get in and mock you. He says, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil. For you are a man of bloodshed. Now Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord and king? I'm sorry, I was reading that kind of like that. Amazing language in the Bible, right? I love the Bible. Brutally honest. Word of, that's the Word of God. Let me go over there now and cut off his head. I, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I, just some, I don't know if it's Braveheart kicking in, but just, you know, the zeal, right? It's kind of like uh, Phineas or Phineas. Let me go over there and cut his head off. This is a mighty man. This is a warrior of David that could all go over there and do that like nothing. And king, the king said, what have I to do with you, O sons of Zariah? He says, if he curses, and if the Lord has told him, which is another way of saying the Lord allows it, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done this? In other words, if this is what God has ordained as part of my shame, I will undergo it. If this is what I have to undergo, as I patiently, by faith, wait for God to vindicate me, then this is what I will undergo. This is the way that we should view all of our trials. If this is what I have to go through in this life to enter into the kingdom of God, then so be it. 
If I have to get sick like this, if I have to have this mystery illness, then so be it. If I have to undergo this great tragedy in my life, then so be it. If this dysfunction has to enter into my family situation, then so be it. If this person in the ministry has to turn around and betray me, then so be it. Who cares? At the end, when you are fully trusting and fully placing your confidence in your true glory, any earthly glory that you thought you had, that you think people are taking from you, is inconsequential. See how this psalm helps us to put priorities straight. The last thing is that he prays for total confidence. You go back to Psalm 3. He says, not only does he say, you are a shield about me, you're my glory, he says, and you are the lifter of my head, or the one who lifts my head. In other words, his encouragement would not come at his own hands, his own doing, his own manipulation, his own tactics, but he saw that despite my fortunes, the one who encourages me is not the almighty dollar. The one that encourages me is not the pomp and praise that I might receive from man even if I'm in my kingdom. That's not what lifts up my head. That's not what gives me dignity. What gives me dignity is knowing the Lord. And that's why it says in Psalm 1, it says the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That's where our dignity comes from, is the confidence that we have that God knows our way, which is to say He has regard for us. Totally trusting in God's providence. And David says it again and again and again. Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. What a perfect amplification of what we're seeing there. In Psalm 28, verse 7. This will really test our hearts. He says, the Lord is my strength, my shield. My heart trusts in him and i am helped therefore my heart exalts and my and with my song i shall thank him you notice very carefully what's going on there right it's not just that he says god is my shield my shield uh, my strength and my shield but first he he reiterates my heart trusts in him does your heart trust in him Well, we'll see. And how will we know if your heart trusts in the Lord, really truly trusts in the Lord? Do you exalt? That's the first first evidence in, in the midst of your trials that you are trusting in the Lord. Do you exalt in Him? See, unlike Israel who just grumbled in Him, who just complained, who just, you know, they sort of demanded of God, They were prosperity preachers. God better fix my situation or else I'm not going to trust Him. I had a young lady one time tell me to my face, this is what happens when I try to trust the Lord. She had come into a trial in her life, and what she was saying is that every time I try to really enter into the things of God and really lay hold of God, Everything breaks loose. 
That's the wrong perspective. The evidence that you are genuinely trusting in the Lord is that you exult in Him despite your tribulations, as Paul says in Romans, that we exult in tribulation. And he says, and with my song, I shall thank Him. You can't fake praise, genuine praise. You can't fake a song to the Lord. What are you going to do? Have a bitter heart towards the Lord and say, Oh Lord, it is well with my soul. When it's not, when you're bitter, when you're hardened, when you're upset, when there's doubt, when there's unbelief, when you're moved by your trials. That's why he has his priorities straight. First, resolve your faith in him and then sing to him. I found so much hope in in, in this psalm and in this study for my own heart. On the surface, David had very, very little to rejoice about. But beneath the surface, in the secret place where no one saw the hidden life of David, he trusted in him. This is where his confidence came from. David is teaching us here that we take confidence that God will deal with our adversaries in his time. And in his time, those that oppress us now will be hung out to dry. Look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 9. This is indicative, not necessarily of every temporal trial that we will have or every adversary that we will face. Let's say you're dealing with a disgruntled co-worker or you have, a, you have an evil master over you at work, right? Or let's say there's a family member out to get you. It may not be that that fortune will ever be overturned in this life. But what we're looking at here is eschatological hope. The fact that God will one day vindicate us from all of our enemies because we are in Christ. He says in verse 9, Now Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, for Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head got caught in the oak. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him kept going. I mean, this is like a scene from a Western movie or something. There goes the donkey, clink, 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 clink. There's Absalom hanging in the branches like a fool, hanging there, completely vulnerable. To who? Well, to David's mighty men. And of course, they did ultimately kill him, overthrow him. They speared and sword him to death. Wow. I tell you, the saga of David's life. Brothers and sisters, of course, David's life is one drama of triumph and tragedy. Glory and failure. Ultimately, David's lordship serves to point us forward to a greater king. We know that. David's son, David's Lord, the true anointed of the Lord, whom God will vindicate over all his enemies, both cosmic and earthly powers alike. From the Sanhedrin to Satan, God's vindication of his son like David's, will come soon enough. And here's the glorious thing. We share in that vindication. Paul tells the Romans, God will soon crush Satan under your feet. I think sometimes that Western Christians are at a disadvantage because our enemies are pretty peaceful. No one banging down our door. 
No one forcing us to deny Christ. We're blessed, brothers and sisters. We're blessed in regards to our persecution. But if we're honest with ourselves, we don't need ISIS to knock down the door to shake us from our faith. If we're honest with ourselves, sometimes the smallest little trial can do that. And therefore, it is imperative for us, like David, to have the right perspective at that moment to understand that whatever you think you're losing in that trial, that's not where your glory is found. That is not what protects you. That is not what encourages you ultimately. But your encouragement comes from the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, why do we fear? If we know that You are a shield about us, if we know that You are our glory, if we know that You are the lifter of our head, why do we fear? And why do we falter? And why do we fail in doubt? Oh God, we ask that you would please strengthen our inner man. I feel like the Apostle Paul who says, Cursed be this body of death. Curse this old man. Lord, because if we're honest with ourselves, we are tremendously weak. Sometimes our faith, it feels like it hangs by a thread. And so, God, we pray that you would, by the intercession of our great meteor and high priest, that you would protect our faith. Like Jesus who told Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Oh God, we ask you to sustain us as we go through one tribulation after another, one trial after another. And help us, oh God, like David, as we see repeatedly in his life, and as we'll see in this psalm, repeatedly, abandoning any sort of sense of self-reliance. Forgive us for trusting in ourselves. Forgive us for thinking that the strength comes from within when it doesn't. comes from above. And so, Father, give us that eternal perspective, we pray. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.